This morning marks the second to last one another that we are going to be studying together in our series in the one another's. And I hope that you've been blessed and encouraged by it as we see how God expects his saints, his, his believers, to interact with one another. And so uh, as we um, study the word of God this morning, we're going to be studying the one another of being humble toward one another, be humble toward one another. The text that we're going to turn to this morning is 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. 1 Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. So if you have your Bibles with you this morning, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. If you need a Bible, we have Bibles in the back, and uh, just approach one of the ushers there. They'll be able to give you a Bible that you can take home with you. So 1 Peter 5, Peter writes this, Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing not under compulsion, but willingly according to God and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording it over those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Let's pray once more. Our gracious God and King, we pray that as we open your word and as we study what it has to say, that you would give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and a heart to understand. We pray that as we see what you command of us, those of us who worship you, we pray that you would help us, Lord, to have the humility of heart to not only hear what your word has to say, but to apply it to our lives as well. We pray that you would bless the preaching of your word this morning. It's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Well, in the book of Second Timothy... Chapter 3, the Apostle Paul tells his disciple Timothy that difficult times will come in the last days. And as he describes the last days to Timothy, Paul told Timothy that men would be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, malicious gossips, without self-control, without gentleness, without love for good, treacherous, reckless, conceited, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, and men who claim they are godly, but truly have no real godliness in them. As you hear that list, and as you think about these chaotic times that we live in, it's pretty safe to say that Paul was right. Times of increased stress and difficulty tend to reveal the selfishness that resides deep within the human heart. And while this is typical of what happens during times of stress and difficulty, this does not mean that the response is correct or approved by God. Just because something is 
natural to us doesn't mean that it is right, right? It doesn't mean that God is okay with it. And so in the book of 1 Peter, Peter is writing to Christians who find themselves in these kinds of circumstances. They are distressed believers who've been exiled from their homes, exiled from their communities, and they were scattered all throughout what is now modern-day Turkey. And as Peter writes, he is encouraging these believers to stand firm in their faith despite the increase in anti-Christian hostility. And part of this exhortation to these believers is a reminder that believers must live lives that are godly. It doesn't matter what our circumstances are. We don't have a free pass to live in our sin. We don't have a free pass to act in ways that we deem are right. We are still accountable to God for how we live. We live in times where open persecution is not fully here but it's coming. So how will we as believers respond to persecution when it is here? The temptation that we'll we'll have will be to live in such a way where we think about ourselves first and foremost. We'll think about how we can preserve our lives, how we can preserve the lives of our family, how we can protect ourselves, basically. But What we find in our text this morning are two reminders. Two reminders in light of coming persecution that encourage believers that we are not to be about ourselves completely. That we are not to live in our own selfish pride or self-preservation. But two reminders where we are encouraged to be humble towards one another. That we are to consider others And the first reminder is that every elder is accountable to God. And the second reminder is that every believer is accountable to God. And this is really helpful for us to understand in light of coming persecution because we are reminded of the big picture and how we are to live in the big picture. So the first reminder in light of coming persecution that encourages believers to be humble towards one another is the fact that every elder is accountable to God. Every elder is accountable to God. Previously, in 1 Peter 4, Peter encourages believers to be loving towards one another and not to be surprised by trials and suffering because Christians will suffer in this life for their faith. But it is the job of Christians to make sure that the reason why they're suffering is because they really are seeking to live as Christ called us to live. You don't want to suffer because you've done wrong. You want to suffer because you are a faithful follower of Jesus. You can't say that you're suffering for Christ and someone's persecuting you because you've done something wrong, right? Because if you've done something wrong, then you rightly deserve the consequence for doing something wrong, right? If you get a speeding ticket on your way to church because you're blasting through the neighborhood at 60 miles an hour you, and a cop pulls you over, you can't say, I'm being persecuted for Christ. I was just trying to get to church early or on time, right? You can't say that because you sinned, right? You broke the law. You've trespassed. The civil ordinance... And therefore, you are guilty. And so, the ticket that you receive 
It is rightly earned. Right? So you can't say, I'm suffering for Christ. Woe is me. I got a parking ticket this morning. No, you aren't suffering for Christ. So we have to make sure that any suffering that happens is because we are striving to be godly. We're trying to be the way that God wants us to be. And so, understanding that suffering will happen and that we have to endure through it, Peter begins chapter 5 with this verse, verse 1. Therefore, I exhort the elders among you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed and then he will continue that command later. Right? But he begins with this verse. Peter knows that the ones who will be on the front lines to help the church navigate through times of difficulty and, and stress and trial will be the elders. And so he takes time to address these elders to remind these guys, hey, you, are, you guys are going to be on the front line. You are going to be the ones who help the people through this. And so you need to stand strong too. Right? You need to stand strong first. Now, many of you here in this service right, are not elders, nor do you aspire to be an elder. Right? You hear what elders have to do, and you're like, no, thank you. You can have all of that to yourself, right? and that's okay. That's okay. Right? But Peter's exhortation is still well worth our attention, and we'll see why in just a moment. Right? But Peter knows that the task of shepherding the church through trials and persecutions will not be easy. So you'll notice he comes alongside these elders— Right? And he reminds them that he is their fellow elder. Right? He doesn't put himself above them. He's saying, I am with you. And he's saying that I'm not asking you guys to do anything that I wouldn't myself do. Right? I'm in the trenches with you. Right? Because he is their fellow elder. He's their fellow witness of the suffering of Christ to the congregation and to the world. And not only that, but he's also a fellow partaker of the glory that is to come in Christ's return. And so his aim here is to help the elders see that, yes, he is calling them to a high calling, to a tall task, but he is responsible for living up to this as well. So what is he calling them to do? Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, overseeing not under compulsion, but willingly, according to God, and not for dishonest gain, but with eagerness. So Peter commands these elders, to shepherd the flock of God among them. That word shepherd carries with it the idea of leading, guiding, or caring. It points back to the job of actual shepherds with sheep, where the shepherds are responsible for looking out for the flock by watching out for predators, leading the flock to fresh water and food, and taking care of their needs. Sheep on their own, right? they're not going to protect themselves. Right? You've seen sheep in the zoo. They can't protect themselves. Right? If some kid decided to come by and ride on them, they won't be able to defend themselves. They're at the mercy of the child or whoever is protecting them. Sheep on their own will eat whatever's in front of them. They'll drink whatever's in front of them. Right? So the job of shepherds is to lead them to fresh water so they don't drink diseased and stagnant water. Right? To bring them to those green pastures so that they have nutritious things to eat. 
And that is the job of the shepherd in the past, and this is the imagery that, that Peter is recalling as he's telling these elders, you are to shepherd the flock of God. You're to care for their needs. You're to watch out for them. You're to protect them. You're supposed to feed them. Right? And this is the, the, the job that Jesus called Peter to do previously in John 21, 15 to 17. Right? Jesus has Peter alone, and he's reminding Peter to tend his flock, to shepherd his flock, or to tend to his lambs. And those are some key words, aren't they? Whose flock is it? Whose church is it? The church doesn't belong to you. The church doesn't belong to me. It does not belong to Pastor Henry. It doesn't belong to any of the elders. The church belongs to God. It belongs to Christ. Now, there is a sense, right, where we should have some ownership over the church that we attend. There is a sense in which those of us who are members of this church should care about the ministry that happens here. But what we have to remember is that though we have a little bit of ownership in the sense that we take responsibility for this church and for the ministries that we have here in this church, ultimately it all goes back to Christ, right? It is all His. We are given temporary stewardship over this ministry, this church, right? But this is all Christ. It all belongs to him. We have to remember that. We always have to remember that. that this is not ours. This is his, right? And so how are shepherds, or sorry, how are elders to shepherd the flock, shepherd God's flock? Well, first, elders are to shepherd God's flock willingly. Elders are to shepherd God's flock willingly. Another word that describes the job of shepherding is the word overseeing, It is the idea of leading, guarding, and feeding God's people. And Peter elaborates more on what it means for elders to oversee God's flock when he says here that the job that they're supposed to do of shepherding is supposed to be done willingly according to God, according to God's standard, God's call. Elders are to care for God's people the way that God intended for them to care for God's people and the way that God has allowed for them to care for God's people. And this responsibility is not one that elders should do just because they have to, but they should do so willingly. We don't want leaders watching out for our spiritual well-being just because it is their job. We want our leaders to watch over us, to love us, to care for us, and to teach us because they love us, because God first loved them. Because they actually have a care for us. We want leaders to care for us because they understand the great love that God has had for them and the great love that God has for the people around them. And so that love for God should translate to love for people. If you go to a church down the road, later down in life, and the elders are there just to do a job, just to keep the ministry rolling and going, and surviving. And all that they're concerned about is making sure that the church survives. But they don't care for you. Run. Run as hard and as far away as possible from that church as you can. Because they're mercenaries. They don't care for your soul. They just want the numbers. We don't want leaders, shepherds, pastors, 
to watch over our souls if they're just in it for themselves. Now, don't get me wrong. Again, right, there is a sense where we as a body do have a responsibility towards one another. And we do have a responsibility towards one another. We are supposed to care for each other, right? There is a duty that we have, but the heart attitude behind that service still needs to be done out of a love for God. If we don't love God and we're doing ministry, then what are we doing? Who are we doing it for? Right? When our heart attitude for service is done out of a love for God, it's a result of us buying in to the idea that this life that we live is all about glorifying God and accomplishing his purposes within the church. And not just within the church, but outside the church. So, we serve willingly, having bought into God's plan and program, rather than just because I have to. It's not just because we have to. We want to. That's what it should be. Secondly, elders are to shepherd God's flock with eagerness. Now, some people might be tempted to do the task of shepherding because they look at it as an opportunity to take advantage of others financially. They shepherd dishonestly or greedily because they are only interested in doing the job because it has something in it for them. This is not ministry done out of a pure heart, but out of a wicked desire to only care for others if they get compensated for it. Only to care for others if there's something in it for them. Status reputation, perhaps even wealth. And that should not be the attitude of an elder. Rather, every elder should serve with great eagerness, with great enthusiasm, with great energy, willing to be spent for the purpose of God. Love for God and love for his people drives that enthusiasm. Yeah, you might be tired, But love for God is the thing that pushes you through. It pushes you forward. Paul describes what motivated his ministry in 2 Corinthians 5.14 when he writes this, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. The love of Christ is the thing that controls us, the thing that motivates us, the thing that pushes us forward even when we're tired. Paul knew tired. He knew fatigue. His ministry was not easy. Right? We can't say that Paul's ministry was light and joyful all the time. He endured much, and yet he was willing to be spent for the sake of God because he loved God. The love of Christ is what controls us. It's what pushes us forward. It's why we do what we do. I mean, you look around at this sanctuary, you see the day camp decorations. Why do we have these day camp decorations up? Why do we run day camp? It's not because we want the community's money. It's not because, well, we ought to do something. Why do we do it? Because the love of Christ controls us. It pushes us forward. It wants us to spread the gospel right, so that all these children and their parents might know the great love that God has for us. That's why we run day camp. That's why we have other camps. That's why we have other ministries. right? Because the love of Christ controls us. It propels us forward to the rest of the world so that we can proclaim to them that God has forgiven us of all of our sin and he is willing to, this very day, adopt us into his family. 
Right? The love of Christ controls us. And so because of that, right, there is great eagerness. I can't wait to get to the task of doing what God wants me to do. That's what it should be. Right? So love for God, love for Christ, and a resulting love for people. Not a love for money motivates ministry to God's people. Now third, right, elders are to shepherd God's flock by being examples. Verse 3. Nor yet as lording it over those allotted to you, but being examples to the flock. If you haven't noticed it already, right, Peter's pattern first explains what shepherding is not, and then he explains what shepherding is. And so what he says here is that elders are to be examples of the flock. How? By not lording it over those allotted to them. Now, what does it mean to lord over someone? It means to act as a master over them, or to act as a ruler over them, to be domineering over someone. And this is the kind of behavior that Jesus condemns. When 10 of the disciples are annoyed by John and James's mother, as she goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, when it's time for your kingdom to come, can you have one of my sons at your left and the other one of my sons at your right? right? Places of honor. And these other disciples, they're annoyed by that because they're like, oh man, I wanted honor. I wanted to be first. Right? I wanted to be at Jesus' right hand or perhaps even his left. I just wanted something. I wanted that honor, that greatness in the coming kingdom. But Jesus, he redefines that greatness for them. Right? Because greatness in Jesus' kingdom is not the same as the greatness that the world desires when it comes to what they believe a ruler is owed. Jesus' servants are not to rule with an iron fist. They are not to act as dictators. They are not to oppress. Rather, what Jesus reveals later in verses 26 and 28 of Matthew 20 is that they are to be servants. Just as Jesus was a servant, though he is a king. Now, going back to 1 Peter 5.3, the elders that Jesus lends authority to are to be an example of servant leadership to those allotted to them. That idea of allotment is really interesting. Right? It's kind of like, this is your responsibility. It's really interesting because every single person here, whether you're an elder or whether you're a member of the congregation, you have been placed here by God at this particular time for a particular reason. And this is the stewardship that the elders have, have to minister to you in this particular time, in this particular season, for however long God will have you. You are, you are our stewardship, our responsibility. We answer for you. And so, faithfulness to God's command for elders to shepherd the flock among them, willingly, and with eagerness requires that we love the flock, right? That elders love the flock and that we strive to lead by example into all that Christ has commanded. Why? Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
the elders God provides in the church all answer to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ. If you want to think about it this way, the elders are the under-shepherds, the associate shepherds of Jesus. We have been given delegated authority by the chief shepherd to shepherd the flock. So, the elders of this church and of every healthy church, must be careful to shepherd God's people faithfully and carefully, never exceeding the authority delegated to us. Since the church does not belong to us, it belongs to God. It belongs to Christ. When the the elders shepherd the flock well, through the trials that they face, through the difficulties that the whole congregation faces, What we see here in verse 4 is this promise that these elders will receive the unfading crown of glory. It's their reward for faithfully shepherding God's people through difficulty, through trial. And as the end draws near, those of us who are elders and those of us who aspire to be elders must remember that God has given us the responsibility to lead and feed his flock. Yes, he is the one who brings us all safely home, but we will still answer to him in how we lovingly care for those whom God has placed in our care. Now, how does this relate to the people in the church who are not shepherds? Well, that leads us to the second reminder in light of coming persecution that encourages believers to be humble towards one another, and that is that every believer is accountable to God. Every believer is accountable to God. Every elder is accountable to God, and every believer is accountable to God. Just because you may not be an elder nor aspire to be an elder does not mean that there are therefore no responsibilities before God. In fact, Peter takes specific care to make sure that he shepherds those who are under the shepherding care of the elders. In verse 5, he writes this, You younger men, likewise, be subject to your elders. And all of you clothe yourselves with humility towards one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The word likewise is the key to our understanding of how every believer has an accountability and responsibility before God, just like the elders do. If you want to think about it this way, the elders model for the congregation how we are to live in submission to God. As the elders submit to God and his word, the congregation should see the example of the elders submitting themselves to God and God's word, and they should emulate that same submission to God's word. If you want to think about it another way, another way, it's like how in parenting, right, we emphasize for kids the need for first-time obedience to mom and dad or to grandma and grandpa, right, but mainly mom and dad, so that they can learn in a small way what it will be like to obey God. Right? It's the picture of what it looks like to obey God. Because in teaching kids how to obey mom and dad, the goal is that they will see, big picture, how that relates to obeying God. And so, that's what we're trying to demonstrate. That's what Peter is trying to demonstrate. As he says, likewise, right? The rest of the church follows the example of the elders as the elders try to submit themselves holy to God and to God's word. And so first, Peter addresses the younger men. And this doesn't mean that the more seasoned saints were off the hook in terms of 
submitting to the elders. Because what Peter is recognizing is in those days, typically, those who were elders are those who were spiritually mature and older. Right? Those who were spiritually mature were older. Though they were the older ones in the congregation. And this is not always the case, but that is the reality that Peter recognizes. It was normative for those who were spiritually mature to be older chronologically. But in addressing the younger men, the main focus is not chronological age necessarily, but spiritual age, right? spiritual maturity. But even though we're talking about spiritual maturity, right? It's not necessarily untrue that younger believers, younger men and women tend to have issues when it comes to submitting to, to the elders. I'm sure that if you've been in the church long enough, you've seen your fair share of prideful young men and women coming back into the church after spending a year away in college or graduate school. And they've attended a particular church under a particular pastor, and they think that they understand what maturity looks like. They think that they understand better now how church should be run, how ministry should be done. I'm sure you've seen your fair example of that. And they come back and they're ungrateful and they say, man, this church, what's wrong with it? We don't do this and this and this. We don't do such and such and such. Or my church back in wherever I went, right? they do this and they do that and they're healthy. This church is an unhealthy church. There's no grace there. There's a lack of grace there. And I'm sure that you also have seen your fair share of younger believers who get their first taste of theology, right? or their first taste of sound teaching after being at a church that did not teach as soundly before, right? and they're going around, they're super excited, they're super zealous, but they're making everything a sin issue. Everything's black and white, but there's no room for gray. There's no room for grace. Peter recognizes That rebellion against God's appointed leaders often starts among those who are younger in the faith. Because they think they know everything. Because they think in their pride that they have it all figured out. And so that's why he reminds these younger ones to submit to their elders. And the elders in the church, not to the older saints, right? So older saints, you can't use this. See, submit to your elders. No, this is about church leaders, okay? Those who serve as elders and whose job it is to shepherd the flock among them, right? Those are the ones that the younger ones are to submit to. Now, is there a limit to submission? Absolutely, yes. Absolutely, yes. Because what we see throughout 1 Peter is that Peter has taught the persecuted church that they are to submit to every institution of authority in the civil sphere and even in our own personal relationship spheres, like in marriage. But this doesn't mean that there isn't room to disagree or take a stand. Because after all, in Acts 4, 18 through 20, the religious leaders in Israel arrested Peter and John and commanded them not to share the gospel with others. But their command was not a just command. It was not a righteous command. It would have been sin for Peter and for John to stop sharing the gospel because they were commanded by Christ to make disciples of all nations. And so the higher allegiance to God overrides any submission that we might owe to an earthly authority. So submission in and of itself is not a bad word. Although we tend to think of it as a bad word because we see it as a loss of our own dignity. 
We see it as a loss of our rights. But really, the idea of submission is simply to line up under. Right? To line up under someone. Particularly, in this case, it would be an authority. When we give people our submission, we are recognizing the God-given authority that has been delegated to them by God himself. It's been delegated to them by God himself. That means God has a purpose for whoever he has placed you under. Whoever's authority that you are under, God has a purpose for that, even if they're not good people. He has a purpose for you to be there. When those who have been delegated authority by God exceed the authority given to them, this is when it would be appropriate for discerning believers to put aside those things which exceed the scriptures and fall in line properly under the scriptures. Remember, the elders are under shepherds to Christ. This is God's church. This, is, this church is God's flock. Right? The only authority that we must submit to wholly is God's authority. Every other institution or, or authority figure is worthy of submission so long as they do not cause us to go against God and what he has revealed in his word. And so, in order to submit to the elders that God has placed over us, there must be a lot of humility on our part to put aside any selfish pride that we might have. Right? To put aside an insistent on our own way, in our own rights. Even if you might disagree with a decision or, or uh, the direction that the elders believe God is taking this church, a willingness to submit to the elders that God has given you in this church means that you willingly and respectfully seek to follow the lead of those who are seeking to lead this church in a way that pleases God. Now, you can have your own opinions, right? You can disagree, but you want to make sure that if you disagree, that you disagree well, or that you disagree in a way that honors the Lord. Again, right? the leadership that the elders provide for the church is not one of ruling with an iron fist. Right? We want to shepherd lovingly and, care- and carefully and caringly. We are willing to hear you. We want to hear you. And you know, even though we might be godly individuals whom God has given to the church, it doesn't mean that we are perfect. Right? We're still in progress. We're still in process of becoming more like Jesus, just like you are. And so we will make our mistakes. We have made our mistakes. And so, before God, we are accountable to him for all those mistakes. Right? For some of you, you've experienced a lack of communication from the elders. And you're kind of wondering, what are we doing? Why are we doing it this way? Right? Maybe we've moved too fast and we've left some of you in the dust. And we've, we've asked for forgiveness and apologized to those to whom we've done that. Right? Why? Because that's what's right before the Lord. And so, you know, We strive to lead you the best that we can, but we will have our failures. And so, 
when we have our failures, we invite you to come talk to us. Right? Let us know. Let us know. But do so in a way that pleases the Lord. Right? That's all what we're all striving to do. So do so in a way that pleases the Lord. Right? Don't go home and say, oh yeah, I submit. Right? But when you're at home, you're like, those elders have no idea what they're doing. They're so stupid. I could do this better than them. Rather, instead, our goal is, instead of being prideful, to humbly come alongside and say, hey, have you guys considered this? Have you considered maybe going in this direction? Would it be good for us, perhaps, to move in this direction or to have this under our consideration? There's a profound difference between between submitting on the surface but going home and being prideful or having a bitter heart within us. A lot of times when we rebel, when we reject, there is this bitterness in our hearts. Or there's a pride in our hearts. I know better. My other church, they do it right. You guys don't know nothing. We want to avoid that bitterness. We want to avoid that pride. Because that lurks deep within our own hearts. Just because someone sins against you doesn't mean that you have to sin in response. And so if we failed you, you don't have to respond in kind. Rather, you come alongside and you show us where we failed so that we can be reconciled to you and be reconciled to God. And that's our aim. Rather than to allow for the sinful circumstances to cause us to deepen our own sin. Because that's not excusable either. We're all accountable to God. So we have to have a humble heart even then. If our disagreements aren't a big deal, you can choose to let it slide. But if you think that it is important, that we should consider another perspective or another direction, then please just humbly let us know. Rather than Talk amongst yourselves and say, this church, they don't get it. This church, this is not a good church. Let's get out of here. Right? These, these leaders, they have no idea what they're doing. Help us. Right? Help us instead. Come alongside us. Do you love us? Do you care for us? Do you want us to honor Christ too? Right? If you do, help us. Help us. Let us know what your concern is. Because we do want to care for you. We want to faithfully shepherd the flock that God has given to our charge the best that we can because we love God and we love you. Right, so help us. Right, because by God's grace, we will all get to the end together. Together. Right, not separately, but together. In the second half of verse 5, we see that a humble attitude is not something that we are to have uh, towards the elders alone. Peter says that the whole congregation, right, the whole congregation is to clothe themselves with humility towards one another. And this command for each person to clothe themselves with humility is a reminder that there should be no such thing as a prideful Christian. 
There should be no such thing as a prideful Christian. It doesn't matter whether you have a seminary education. It doesn't matter whether you've read Grudem in its entirety. It doesn't matter if you are super smart and you listen to all the podcasts and you are the disciple of MacArthur, Piper, and Sprawl. We are all to be humble towards one another. Right? Knowledge should not be the thing that makes us prideful. It should be the thing that actually humbles us and drives us to our knees, recognizing that we are only able to experience the goodness of God by His grace. Right? We're only able to know theology and to appreciate theology by God's grace. So there should be no such thing as a prideful Christian. Because we didn't save ourselves. So we should all be driven to our knees and wonder, what is man that God would consider us? Or the son of man that God would care for us? That should be the humble attitude of every Christian out there. If you encounter someone who teaches theology Wrongly, that's not an opportunity for you to blast them into the stratosphere because they're stupid. Rather, the response should be a humility, one of humility, one of compassion, one of care. Because what they don't, because they don't know what they don't know. Right? What they know is wrong. But just because they're wrong doesn't mean that we're prideful. Right? We're humble. Right? We'll all wrestle with some form of pride in our lives. But the mindset that we are to have towards one another is the same that Christ had with God in Philippians 2, 5 through 8. Right? Because in this particular case, Jesus had every right to insist on his own way. He's God. He could have demanded equality with God the Father, but he recognized that though he was God, though he is God, he's still subordinate to God. He is, right, this is one of the mysteries of the Trinity, he is still subordinate to God the Father. He's submissive to God the Father. If Christ chose to be humble, even though he is God, shouldn't we, who are not God, choose to be humble in our interactions with one another? Or if I can put it in a sports analogy, if Steph Curry can come off the bench, why can't, why can't other members of the Warriors come off the bench? Returning to the end of 1 Peter 5, 5. Paul quotes Proverbs 3, 34. And he's reminding the saints of the reason why we ought to be humble towards one another. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Notice what it says here. God is opposed to the proud. End of sentence. Every single person who is prideful, God is opposed to. It's not just proud leaders. It's proud everybody, right? Everyone who is proud, God is opposed to, but he gives grace to those who are humble. The heart of pride, what's the problem with it? The heart of pride seeks to take the place of God and make itself the ultimate king. Therefore, God is always opposed to the proud because we're trying to take his place. We're trying to be God. We're trying to control our circumstances. And God says, no, no, no. I am God. I control everything. I control all circumstances. God says in Isaiah 42, 8, that he will not share his glory with another. 
which means he will not share his glory with us in that sense, right? That we claim to be God and take his place. Those who are humble are those who acknowledge God. As we are reminded in Romans 1, 18 through 32, God gives people over to their sinful desires because of their failure to acknowledge him and give him thanks. But grace, grace is available to those who are humble, to those who believe in him and repent of their sins. Before God, every believer is accountable for how they interact with the elders and how they interact with each other. And so, fellow Christians, brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ, consider how you might clothe yourselves in humility and be humble towards one another, knowing that we will give an answer to God for our obedience to put off pride and to put on humility. If you are here this morning and you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, the solemn warning that we give to you, that the scriptures give to you, is this reminder that God is opposed to the proud. He is opposed to the proud. And if you think for yourself, no, I don't need God, I'm good. That is a statement of pride. Because God is the creator of everything. He is the sustainer of everything. And for us to say, I don't believe God. He is nothing to me. It's a statement of pride. I know better. God's not real. It's a statement of pride. And for all of our sins, right? Every sin that we commit, we deserve God's wrath for all eternity. We've earned it. But the good news is this. Though we are all prideful, though we are all sinful, right? Though none of us are righteous, not even one of us, God, in his love and in his care for us, chose himself to be humble. He sent Christ to earth to die on the cross for our sins and rise again on the third day so that everyone who might believe in him will have their sins forgiven and be saved. And so I invite you this day to consider the great love that God has for you, to put aside your pride, And to be humble because God wants to give you his grace this very day. This morning, we were given two reminders in light of coming persecution that encourages believers to be humble towards one another. Persecution and trials may tempt us to act in our own selfish pride and our own selfish interest. But the elders and the members in the congregation are exhorted by Peter to be submissive to God and to be humble because we all give an account to him for how we live. We're all accountable for how we respond to trials. And as we've seen through the example of Christ, it is possible to submit to God and entrust ourselves to him even though what we may be experiencing is difficult and perhaps even unfair. But in the end... In the way that we endure through persecution and trust God through it all, we will show the great power of the gospel to deliver because of God's great power to deliver. Before I invite the worship team to lead us in a closing song, I want to provide some application questions for you to consider uh, individually or even in your small groups this week. Number one, in what ways do we act with or in selfish pride when faced with trials and difficult circumstances. Number two, how do we 
Sorry, how do the specific manifestations of our pride seek to take the place of God in our lives? In other words, how do we tend to try and take the place of God? How do we tend to act like God in our lives? Number three, how can we, or sorry, what can we do to put on humility and to put off pride? Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful for your word and for how it shows us the great humility that we are to have. This is the humility that was modeled to us by Christ. And because of this humility, we're reminded that we are all to be humble ourselves, that we are to be humble to God as those who are leaders, and and those of us who follow leaders are to be humble, recognizing that the humility that we display to the leaders is the humility that we ultimately display to you. And so we pray, Father, for humility for all of us, that we would all seek to be humble and to consider one another, especially when we're more tempted to be concerned for ourselves. And so, Father, we pray for great grace to help us become more like Jesus in our humility towards one another. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen.